If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. It is found immediately after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Have you ever wondered about your ancestry? Where you came from? Maybe you have researched your genealogy and constructed a family tree. Maybe you've been able to go back several generations and know who your great, 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 great grandparents were and where they came from and what they did. Or maybe you're happy with very general observations, like my daughter, who last week announced to me with stunning realization, Daddy, your great, great, great grandmother lived in the olden days. What is it about the olden days that draws us? If you do a simple online search, you will find scads of family tree templates, family tree software. Genealogy has become a billion-dollar industry. Companies like findmypast.com and ancestry.com report millions in revenue. You can even find multiple sources telling you how to make genealogical research your life's career, that you can make a living researching people's genealogies. We like to know our heritage. We like to know where we come from. Now, I'm no sociologist, but I would offer that this is because we crave identity and meaning. And that knowing who our great-great-grandparents were helps us understand who we are and how we are significant in the world. If we discover an ancestor was a great military leader, then maybe we have great leadership potential. Or maybe it explains to us why we have an ambition to lead. If we find out our forebears were pioneers on the Oregon Trail, well, maybe that explains our adventurous spirit. If your father or grandfather fought in World War II, you probably have a sense of pride. Or you come from Irish stock. You don't speak Gaelic. You've never even been to Ireland but you celebrate St. Patrick's Day with fervor and you give your children all Irish names. My own father discovered a few years ago that my great, 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 maybe? Grandfather had some business dealings with Davy Crockett. There you go. There's my claim to fame. (laughs) My great, great, great grandfather bought a pig from Davy Crockett or sold him some weed or something. Our ancestries are part of our stories. Knowing our genealogies gives us a heritage, and it helps us make sense of the now. What about our spiritual ancestry? Where do we, the church, come from? Why do we gather? How can we call ourselves the people of the living God? What is our purpose? What is our meaning? What is our place in history? We, as the people of God, have a family tree. 
we, the church, have an ancestry, a heritage, and it is found in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is more than a birth certificate, and it's more than just a genealogy. It is a charter for the people of God. It tells us who we are as a community. It tells us where we came from. It tells us why and how God has called together men and women from every tribe and every nation and every language into a new people for his own namesake. It gives us roots. It gives us meaning and purpose. So I want to introduce you to the book of Acts today. And I want to set the stage for this glorious drama of the church's birth, preparing our hearts for the study that lies before us. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, tell us why Luke writes this account. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, the author of Acts is Luke, one of Paul's fellow workers in the ministry of the gospel. And the first book that he refers to here is his gospel, the Gospel of Luke, which shares many of the same themes and truths that the book of Acts does. It is something he had already written and given to Theophilus. Theophilus is probably a, an influential Roman official or a businessman, a patron, somebody who had helped fund maybe some of the missionary journeys. But he is a Gentile who has believed the gospel, but needs some assurance, some understanding of who Jesus was, thus the gospel of of Luke, and also about the beginning of the church. How is the church legitimate in the world? Luke is saying that this account, our book of Acts, is a companion volume to the gospel of Luke. Though it is written differently, it is really a continuation of the story. Which brings us to a couple of challenges when studying the book of Acts. The first is realizing that Acts is story. Or, if you want to use a literary term, it's narrative. It's different than reading the letters of the New Testament. The letters of the New Testament are very straightforward. They give us commands. They teach. The book of Acts is history. But it is theological history. That is, the book of Acts gives us theological instruction. It's okay to call it story, but it is authoritative story. And by that I mean it is a divine story that not only talks about something that happened, all of these events and people and places, but that it is a divine story and that it makes a claim on the reader's life. It calls anyone who reads the book of Acts to accept its message, to hear the gospel of Jesus and to turn to him and trust in him. 
So it not only records all of these things, it reveals the will of God for his people in the world. It makes it an imperative for the church. Now, one key proof of this is the amount of speech material in the book. As we go through the book of Acts, every few verses we're going to come to a sermon or a speech given by one of the central characters. We'll encounter these frequently. Peter preaches the first gospel message in chapter 2. He preaches the fulfillment of prophecy in chapter 3. He defends Jesus as the Christ before the Jewish courts in chapter 4 and again to the Gentiles in chapter 10. Stephen, one of the early leaders in the church, defends this new Christian faith as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament in chapter 7. Paul addresses the Athenians on Mars Hill in chapter 17. He gives an impassioned farewell speech in chapter 20. He issues a challenge to the city of Jerusalem in chapter 22. Chapters 23 through 26 are filled with a series of Paul's defense speeches before Roman courts. It is teaching us something. And all of these create a framework for truth for the community of faith. Which brings us now to the second challenge. And that is knowing how to apply the book of Acts. In what ways is Acts meaningful for us today? If it's not just a record and it's teaching us something, but it's story, it's narrative, then how do we take it and how do we apply it? Well, there are two basic approaches. The first is what we call a prescriptive approach, prescribe. If a doctor gives you a prescription, he's saying, you take this medicine. He's not just suggesting it, he's prescribing it. Now, if we approach the book of Acts that way, then every time we read a story about something that happened, we would have to understand the book of Acts to be telling us this is the way it is to be done. This is the way it is to happen. The other approach to understanding the book of Acts and applying is is to see Acts as descriptive. That is, it's describing. It's not meant to say that everything that happens is to be the norm for God's people in every age. It's simply describing what God did at that point in time. So, for example, let me give you some examples from the book of Acts. In chapter 1, the apostles are confronted with a dilemma because there need to be 12. And yet one of the 12 disciples betrayed Jesus, Judas Iscariot. And in guilt and in remorse over his sin, not repentance, but remorse and guilt, Judas has committed suicide. He has killed himself, leaving their number only with 11. They must choose a new disciple. And so they prayerfully consider who will replace Judas, and they come up with two men. And the text doesn't tell us how they came up with these two guys, but there are these two men that they're deciding between. And once they narrow it down to these two men, what do they do? They cast lots, they throw dice. And allow God to determine the dice roll to determine who is the new 12th apostle. Now, should we approach that text prescriptively? 
Hey, who's going to be the new, who's going to be the new men's ministry coordinator? Odds, you're it. Is that how we do it? But if you take Acts prescriptively, that's how you would do it. Descriptively, we understand that that's something that's happening right then. I'll give you another example. What about the exercise of the gift of tongues? How about when tongues, people begin to speak in tongues? It happens in chapter 2, when the apostles receive the Holy Spirit, and they begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in every language that's present there in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, it happens again when the gospel comes to the Samaritans. They receive the gospel message from Philip, and the Holy Spirit comes, and they are filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues. It happens again in chapter 12, when Peter goes to Cornelius' house and preaches for the first time to Gentiles, and they receive the gospel. Tongues. Holy Spirit comes, tongues are spoken. Prescriptively, that would mean every time anybody got saved, we should expect them to be speaking in the gift of tongues. Descriptively, we would understand that there's a purpose in that, but that that's not the norm for all of God's people throughout all of time. I'll give you one more example. In chapter 28, Paul is on a sea voyage to Rome. They crash and end up marooned on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean Sea. And they're meeting the natives, they, the, the, the Roman soldiers, all of the passengers and prisoners like Paul. They meet the natives, and they're trying to survive. Paul goes up to get firewood, and he places the branches into the fire, and out comes a viper. That's the term the book of Acts uses, a poisonous snake that was bedded up in those branches, it comes out and it latches itself onto Paul's hand. And all of the natives, knowing that Paul is a prisoner, go, he must be guilty. The gods are punishing him and executing him right now. But of course, God preserves Paul's life and he pulls the snake off and there's no effect. He preaches the gospel and a lot of Maltans are saved. Does that mean that we should have a pit of poisonous vipers here? You may think it's funny, but there are people called snake handlers in certain denominations in this country who will handle poisonous snakes based on that text. Should we approach acts prescriptively or descriptively? Now, there are downsides to both. If you say acts is purely descriptive, it is not prescriptive at all, then you're left with some real vacancy when coming to the book of Acts, aren't you? It seems like there would be so much that's not really meaningful. If you say it's prescriptive, you end up with weird and at times dangerous. The key here, and I will throw out these two words and I'll use them throughout our study of Acts, principle and pattern. Principle and pattern. There are certain things in Acts that when we come, we're going to say, this is describing. That doesn't mean it's the norm, but it has meaning for us in this way as the people of God. Receiving this word, this book of Acts, this is what we're to walk away with. How we're to think, how we're to act, how we're to go about ministry. Principle and pattern. 
What is the book of Acts about? What is its theme or central thought? Well, some believe that it is the apostles, their ministry, their actions, and in fact, the name that has been given to this book of the Bible is named for that reason, the Acts of the Apostles. They are the central characters as God's representatives following Christ. Some believe that it's the presence and the activity of the Holy Spirit. That's the point of focus. And yes, the Holy Spirit is definitely in the spotlight in the book of Acts. But at the heart of the book of Acts is how, watch, how God grows the church through the preaching of the gospel by faithful witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what Acts is about. It is about how God grows the church through the preaching of the gospel by faithful witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit. Acts is the story of the invincible gospel. That's what it's about. The preaching of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the risen Lord, as the fulfillment of God's ancient promises, that message cannot be stopped. It triumphs over every opponent and every obstacle as God saves people and calls to himself from every corner of the world a people for himself, the church. Now, let me run through the text of Acts. We're, gonna, we're just going to sprint through the entire book today, and I want to show you what I mean. Acts begins by reviewing Jesus' commission to his disciples and promise of the Holy Spirit. I've called you to stay here in Jerusalem. I have promised the Holy Spirit. He will come wait here. Most significant is this de- declaration in chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This verse sets the whole thing in motion, and it summarizes really the basic plot of the book with these words, power, Holy Spirit, witnesses, and then this geographical progression, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit does come, and the church is born amid signs and wonders and the apostles preaching, especially Peter's. The response to the message of the gospel is overwhelming, and a new people of God is born. And this event is summarized in chapter 2, verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now note those words, word and added. A few verses later, this new community is described. Chapter 2, verses 46 through 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the early life of this newborn church is vibrant and powerful, but not without some challenges. 
Peter heals a lamed beggar, and he connects that event to God's promises of all people to Abraham, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Because of it, persecution begins. The faith community continues to practice powerful generosity, yet one couple attempts to lie to the Holy Spirit and deceive him and is judged by God. The apostles continue powerful signs and multitudes are added, which only angers the Jewish leaders. Peter and company are thrown in prison only to be set free by an angel. They keep preaching, so they're beaten. So they rejoice that they can be counted worthy of suffering for the sake of the name. Meanwhile, there is division within the church community requiring more organization and leadership. According to chapter 6, verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So despite all of the opposition, despite the struggles of organizing and serving in this new church, in this community, the word continues to increase and the disciples begin to multiply. Now immediately following in chapter six, Stephen, one of the leaders in the church, is framed and stoned to death. He is the first martyr of the faith. At Stephen's stoning, we are introduced to a young man named Saul who keeps everyone's coats and approves of Stephen's execution. Stephen's death initiates a great persecution of the church in Jerusalem. And so, the gospel is through. (laughs) But no, wait! Because the disciples are now scattered. They're going everywhere. And instead of being silent, they continue to preach. Philip, another leader in the early church, preaches the gospel in Samaria, of all places, and they receive the gospel, and a church is born. Wait a second. Chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria. God uses the persecution of the church to accomplish his will to bring the gospel to Samaria. And the gospel goes even farther. As Philip leads an Ethiopian official to a saving knowledge of Jesus. At this same time, Saul, the zealous coat keeper, has become a celebrity persecutor of this new rebellious religion, only to meet the risen Jesus on his way to Damascus to kill more Christians. Jesus makes him an offer he can't refuse. And Saul believes. And he begins a new calling, immediately launching into arguing with the Jews for who Jesus is as the Messiah, as the Christ. His new calling starts with the same zeal but a new master. And Acts chapter 9 verse 31 summarizes So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. There we go. 
The action follows Peter again as he continues to work wonders and to preach. And in chapter 10, following the promptings of a divine vision, Peter preaches the good news of Jesus at the house of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And what do you know? Gentile pagans believe. The Gentiles are saved. They receive the Holy Spirit and a new faith community is born. Peter reports the unprecedented and unexpected event. He goes back to the apostolic band and tells them what happened, which causes the apostolic band to scratch their heads, but conclude in chapter 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I guess God's going to save the Gentiles too. Praise him. The invincible gospel spreads quickly because before long, the church in Antioch becomes the focus of the story as the first predominantly Gentile church and home base for the Gentile mission. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, James is executed by Herod. This is James, the brother of John. James, who went with Peter and John up onto the mount and saw Jesus transformed into his glory. This is James, whom Jesus took with Peter and John further into the garden to pray with him in Gethsemane before he was crucified. James is executed because of preaching Christ. Peter is thrown in prison. And yet, Peter is miraculously delivered, and God strikes Herod dead in an ill-timed moment of self-worship. Acts 12.24 gives us another summary. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Paul, in his first missionary journey, now takes center stage as Paul plants new churches throughout Asia Minor, And the Jerusalem Council makes a watershed decision that Gentile Christians do not need to be circumcised, but they do need to live holy lives. They must abstain from idolatry. And so Paul launches a second missionary journey, communicating this decision to the churches that are already established and continues to preach the gospel in places where it isn't heard. Acts chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. The account of Paul's second and third missionary journeys focus on his ministries in Philippi, the main city in Macedonia, Corinth, the main city in the region of Achaia, and Ephesus, the primary city in the region of Asia Minor. In each of these places, Paul has extensive gospel ministries despite some dicey opposition. Acts chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. From Ephesus, Paul travels through Macedonia and Greece on his way to Jerusalem, despite being warned of the Jews' plot to trap him there and kill him. Sure enough, Paul goes to Jerusalem, and while in the temple making a vow to the Lord, he is arrested. And he ends up in a series of trials in the Roman courts. And finally, when 
it looks like that he's just spinning tires in the Roman courts, Paul makes a political decision as a citizen of Rome and he appeals to Caesar, which was his goal, to get to Rome. And so he is shipped to Rome. And chapters 27 and 28 tell us a lengthy, detailed account of his sea voyage to the imperial city, which Luke closes with this, Acts chapter 28, verse 14. And so we came. The epilogue leaves Paul in Rome under arrest, but under divine protection, freely preaching the invincible gospel. The word Over and over again, the word. This is the message proclaimed by Jesus and his followers. And you will notice the repetition over and over of these words increased, multiplied, added to. And it is either the church that is increasing and multiplying or it is the word that is increasing and multiplying. That is because their growth is parallel. The word, the gospel message, is a dynamic force, and as it expands, so does the church. They go together. This is the flow of the book. Chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then we have expanse, increase, multiplication. And in chapter 28, verse 14, and so we came to Rome. You see, Rome is the end of the earth. In that, it represents the rest of humanity. You see, the gospel goes to the end of the earth in that it expands all the way from Jerusalem to the hub and center of Gentile, those who are outside of the covenant promises of God. That is the hub and center of civilization in the Gentile world. And Rome, like Jerusalem becomes the launching pad for the next stage of the invincible gospel. Rome and all points beyond. It is the launch pad to the end of the earth. And we are left to continue the expansion. That's why Acts ends the way it does. Paul is just in Rome and preaching and church The church, what are you going to do now? Let me just end with some, saying some general things about the book of Acts. It highlights three ways that the invincible gospel triumphs. First of all, the invincible gospel triumphs according to the plan of God. According to the plan of God. The church is not an aberration. The birth and growth of this new community of faith is the fulfillment of God's promises long ago. This is one of the main reasons that Luke records what he records here in the book of Acts. Because you see, people of the ancient world didn't like new things. They didn't like new religions. They liked things that had long 
pedigrees and ancestries. But here's Christianity. And at first, the Christians are considered to be part of the Jewish faith. They are a sect of Judaism. And we will see this in the book of Acts. Part of the plot line of the book of Acts is how the church takes on its own identity because as it is identified as part of the Jewish faith, the Jews reject it. They don't want any of it. And the Christian faith becomes its own entity. It becomes its own thing. The new people of God. So the Christian faith is not new. And over and over again, from the mouths of Peter and Stephen, and Paul, and Philip, we will see that they point to the scriptures, our Old Testament. For them, it was not the Old Testament. At that point, it was the only testament. It was the scriptures. And they go back to the scriptures. They appeal to the scriptures every time for proof that what is taking place, what people are seeing and hearing is fulfilling the prophecies of scripture. Especially that this Jesus who is being preached is the Messiah. He is the promised one of God. Listen to Acts chapter 3 verses 19 and following. To me this is one of the best summaries of the message of Acts. This is Peter preaching. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. I can't wait till we get to this verse in a few weeks. These verses. Do you hear all that is in that? Repent. Turn back. Let your sins be blotted out. There's refreshing from the presence of the Lord now. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus whom heaven must receive. He's not here right now. He's coming back though. Already part of the gospel message is the future return of this Messiah. And all of it was spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. It's real. So when we talk about the church's heritage, our roots actually go back farther than Pentecost. They go way back, farther than Acts chapter 2. Our genealogy traces all the way back to Abraham. Because we are the fulfillment of the promise God made in those ancient olden days. In Genesis chapter 12. That is our heritage. This plan, the plan of the sovereign God is highlighted throughout the book. And the gospel is invincible because of God's sovereign activity and keeping his plan in motion. It's invincible. It can't be stopped. Secondly, the invincible gospel triumphs by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It triumphs according to the plan of God. And it triumphs by the power of the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned, the book opens with Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit will come and the command to wait for him. And in fact, he is presented as the presence of Christ who does for Jesus' people and works in Jesus' people all that Jesus would work and do for and in his people, even being called the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is shown to be the key to the formation and mission of this new people of God. He empowers the preaching of the gospel. He provides guidance for the disciples. He provides wisdom for the apostles and the other leaders in the church. He selects and commissions a 12th apostle to replace Judas. It is also the Holy Spirit who is said to set aside, set apart, Paul and Barnabas for special missionary work to the Gentiles. It's the Holy Spirit who does these things. He is the spirit of salvation, converting the hearts of people, convicting of sin, and granting repentance. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit that marks this new era of God's plan and work. And it is highlighted by the many references to being filled with the Spirit. Over and over and over again, leaders, churches, are Our communities are described as being filled with the Spirit. And it is fascinating, but the book of Acts speaks of the Spirit's work in the people of God as a community, not as individuals. At times, there are individuals who are filled with the Spirit. But the focus is how the Holy Spirit works in the church, in this new faith community. Together. Now, other places in the New Testament will describe the individual's relationship with the Holy Spirit. But in the book of Acts, the focus is the Spirit's work in the church. So the invincible gospel trials, uh, triumphs according to the plan of God. The invincible gospel triumphs by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the invincible gospel triumphs through the preaching of witnesses. Witnesses. This word witness is an important word in the book of Acts. And it begins with the 12. That's Luke's favorite designation for the apostles. The 12. They were the originals. And it begins with the apostles as the first witnesses. And Part of their authority and their office in the church derives from the fact that they walked with Jesus on earth. They witnessed his suffering, they witnessed his death, and they witnessed his resurrection. That Jesus appeared to them as the resurrected Lord and gave them instructions and commanded them. They are called to a unique role as authoritative witnesses to Jesus' suffering, resurrection, and his lordship. But as the story goes, others begin to proclaim the gospel. Stephen, 
Philip, Apollos, and even Paul, who is an apostle by a special intervention by the Lord Jesus himself. And Luke makes the point that all who believe bear witness. We have been saved for this very purpose. Acts is our charter. And in the apostles' wake, in their tradition, we are witnesses. The apostles' witness is the foundation for our witness. And their witness is the content of our testimony. We are not firsthand witnesses. We are conveyors of the truth to which they witnessed and have left for us. Their preaching establishes a pattern for how we are to bear witness to God's mission in the world. And as you will see, this is more than just sharing personal experience. This is what God's done in my life. That's good, but it's more than that. It's more than good works and community involvement. That may testify to the goodness of the gospel, but it is not the witness that the book of Acts talks about. It means proclaiming the kingdom of God and presenting Jesus as Lord, teaching about him, talking about him, saying this is what Jesus said he was. This is what he did. This is what God has done. This is God's will for the world. These are God's purposes for humanity. Our witness is the ongoing fulfillment of what is promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses, meaning that we will testify to him. We will witness of him. And the reaction to that witness will bring about powerful transformation in the lives of people. And it will many times bring about persecution. The book of Acts is very clear that if you're going to preach the gospel, this invincible gospel, there will be opposition. There will be persecution. There will be a cost to pay. And yet, that gospel remains invincible. So the invincible gospel triumphs according to the plan of God. It triumphs by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it triumphs through the preaching of witnesses. So, we have before us a rich and rewarding study, and I know that God is preparing your hearts just as he is preparing mine. 